morning, Grace. I'm Kenny Clark, one of the elders here at Grace. It's my joy, privilege this morning to get to bring the word for us as we dive back into the Gospel of Luke. We've taken a little break from it since um, mid-fall when we paused to take a few weeks to think about uh, why we gather as a church and we uh, celebrated Defending the Fatherless Sunday. We had a Thanksgiving service, an Advent. And so it's been a, a block of time here since we've been in the Gospel of Luke. But we're going to come back in here at Luke chapter 15 today. So why don't you turn there. We're going to read our bit in a minute. How cool. 250 years, Walt said, right? It's New, Year's, New Year's Eve, 2023. We just 250 years since uh, John Newton wrote that hymn. Amazing. Imagine how many times and how many languages that hymn has been sung. Um, I want us to think about one line from it, though. I'm glad Walt chose it. Uh, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Is, is a very simple testimony of every single true believer there's ever been. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Paul put it in Colossians. Um, he, we've been transferred from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom there's redemption and forgiveness of sins. We were once lost in darkness, but now we're found. So I was thinking about this week, last couple of weeks, I was trying to think about times in my life where I've gotten lost, thinking about illustrations and stuff. And as I thought of every time I've ever gotten lost that I can remember, I knew I was lost, and then I found my way back to where I wanted to be. Any story I can think of when I ever got lost, for example, the first time Betsy and I went to Beijing, um, uh, when we were adopting our daughter Lily Mae, our first day we got up from the hotel, or in the morning, we were all jet lagged, it was like crack of dawn, and we decided we're going to go on foot and just explore what's around our hotel, and we walked all over the place, over to the Forbidden City and Tiananmen Square and all this, and at a point, we were trying to find our way back to our hotel, and we realized, oh my gosh, we're lost, it's our first day in China, and we're lost on foot, we don't speak a word of Mandarin, um, but with a little bit of help and, and finding some people around us that spoke some English and then pointing us to some landmarks, we, we finally found our way back to the hotel. Um, I've had lots of times like that, usually in the car, driving in unfamiliar places back before GPS when I had a Thomas guide in my car. Raise your hand if you know what that is. All right, that's the de line of demarcation in here generationally. It was these old books that we used to keep in our car with maps, paper maps bound with a binder of all the streets in our county. Anyway, I'm not here to talk about Tom. But whenever I got lost, I thought about all these stories, and each time I knew I was lost, I knew I didn't know where I was going, and then I eventually found my way back. And so in each case, I could say I, I once was lost, but I found my way back. But when we sing I once was lost... But now I am found, I have been found by another. We're talking about a very different kind of lost. We're speaking spiritually about what the Bible tells us about the natural state of the human heart from birth in relationship to the God who made us, that we are born lost. And we don't know we're lost. We're the kind of lost... Um, that is willful wandering lost. It's the kind of lost that actually isn't trying to be found at all. It doesn't want to be found because tragically we think we're home already. Ephesians 2, Paul describes this lostness like living deadness, living in a way that we're following the course of this world 
and we're not doing it against our wills, but by just carrying out the very desires and passions of our flesh. By nature, we're lost, it says. That line in the hymn is talking about a kind of lost that is utterly dependent upon another seeking us out and calling us back. As we're going to see in these two parables today in Luke 15, to be a sinner means to be lost, and to repent is to be found, which tells us something about this kind of repentance through which we are saved. It's reliant upon another. It's initiated by a Savior who comes seeking us when we're not wanting to be found, not knowing we need to be found. So let's read Luke 15, 1 through 10, and pray. Now, the tax collectors and sinners, they were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners. He eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that's lost until he finds it. And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman among you, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me! I found the coin that I lost. Just so, I tell you. There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let's pray. Lord, right now I want to pray for us from words that Jesus spoke in John 10. Jesus, you are the door. And if anyone enters by you, they will be saved. They will go from being lost to being found and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but you came that we might have life and have it abundantly. You are the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And Jesus, you tell us in your word, you told your disciples that you have other sheep, and you must bring them also, and they will listen to your voice. Lord, this morning, to any of your sheep who have not yet heard and responded to your voice, I pray today would be the day they hear and come home. And for all those here who have been found, Lord, I pray you would overwhelm us again with the great lengths to which you'll go to seek and save us and the joy with which you celebrate over us when we're found. That would mark us, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name.
Amen. All right. Well, let's look at the setting here. These first two verses, before we get to the the two parables, uh, who are the people in this scene, and what are they each doing? Let's start with the, the tax collectors. This chapter begins, and tax collectors and sinners, all, it says, are drawing near to him. So not just one or two find themselves in the crowd, but a lot of tax collectors and sinners, they're all moving toward Jesus. They're drawing near to him to hear what he has to say. Which would have been surprising because tax collectors were just despised people. They were just reprehensible. They were the ultimate traitor to their own people. To get rich, they, they served their Roman oppressors in collecting taxes, and they fattened their wallets by inflating those taxes and skimming off the top. And they lived well while their own people were being bled dry, and people hated them as traitors who had rejected God's people. They weren't even considered part of God's people. And sinners was just a catch-all word. A word of disdain, publicly known sinners, people whose lives clearly indicated that they were not um, bound to following God's law, particularly like the Pharisees and scribes, following carefully and meticulously all their traditions. So they were those people, sinners. But look at the last verse of chapter 14, where we just left off. Jesus was saying to all who were listening, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And we get to chapter 15, and look who comes listening. The worst of the worst. These despicable people are all the ones crowding in close to hear Jesus. You would think these would be the last people who want to hear a guy whose main message is repent. That's his main message is turn from your sin. And all these known sinners are crowding in to hear more. What must there have been about Jesus, his message and the way he brought it, that didn't push these people away, but it actually was magnetic and drew them in? I think, in part, it's what we see Jesus doing here in the opening. What's Jesus doing? He's receiving these people. And he's eating with them. He's not shunning them. He's not looking at them as outsiders. He's not cutting himself off and and, and looking the other way. He's welcoming them even around the table to share food, to put his hand in the same food that's being passed around as they are, to touch the same food that they are. He doesn't see himself as being defiled by them. He's welcoming them. And they want to hear what he has to say. Then there's the other group here mentioned, the Pharisees and the scribes. And they're grumbling about Jesus. That's the the key word. They're grumbling. In fact, it's very interesting. Luke is the only person in all the New Testament that uses this word, and he uses it twice, this this particular word for grumbling. Right here, and in a few weeks we're going to see in chapter 19, again, when he's eaten with tax collectors like Zacchaeus around the table, and the Pharisees are grumbling again. But you know where this word does get used quite a bit is in the Greek Old Testament. Every time it talks about the Israelites grumbling against God and grumbling against the leaders and the prophets that God sent to them, it's the same word. And I think it's very intentional. Luke wants us to understand these guys don't even realize they are following a tragic pattern 
of the generations before them, the leaders of the generations before them. They're grumbling against God himself. In their view, Jesus is defiling himself, and the very fact that he would eat with people like this, in their mind, is proof positive he cannot be sent from God. No one sent from God would associate with these kind of people. And what they don't realize is he is revealing the very heart of God in receiving and eating with sinners. They're grumbling against the redeeming work of God. So he launches into this series of actually three parables. We read two this morning uh, in two weeks after the Unboned Conference weekend. Jason Oaks will bring us to the third one. But these three parables that together answer a simple question. Why does Jesus receive and eat with sinners? The first two that we just read, you probably noticed, are almost identical in their storyline and plot points. They just have different characters and different lost things, right? So a shepherd and a poor woman, respectively, lose one sheep out of a hundred or one coin out of ten. And each person earnestly seeks them out until they find them, at which point they return home, call their friends and neighbors together, and throw a party rejoicing over the lost thing that has been found. In a couple of weeks when we get to the third story, it's going to follow the same plot points, except in this case there's a literal sinner, son, who leaves his father, abandons him, takes his inheritance, squanders it until he's got nothing left, and he's at rock bottom, and he remembers the kindness and mercy of his father, and he turns and he goes back, knowing his father is merciful. And we would think the story would end like these two there, with another feast and celebration, but it keeps going, as we're going to see in two weeks. After the sinner's son returns home, the other son is grumbling. He doesn't want to come to the party. And the father's going to plead with him to come in. But Jesus' story is going to end not telling us what happens to that second son. So in this first parable, we got one out of a hundred sheep lost. In the second, we got one out of ten coins lost. In the third story we're going to see, though, two out of two sons were lost. The story only tells us about one being found, and it leaves this fat elephant hanging in the room for all the grumbling Pharisees and scribes to wonder, what's going to happen with this second son? Will he join the party? Or he's going to keep his arms folded, resenting the kindness and the grace of God. But that's for next week, that third story. All right. So let's look at the two we have this morning, because in the first two parables, Jesus just focuses on the positive argument for why he eats and receives and eats with sinners. So here's the big question. What do these two parables teach us about God that explain why Jesus receives and eats with sinners? Number one, they both teach us that God will go to great lengths to seek and to save the lost. Look at the first parable of the sheep that's lost. And look at the things that point to the great lengths to which the shepherd will go. It starts, as soon as he realizes that one is gone, he goes out after the one that was lost. He doesn't just say, all right, let's just keep the gate open until morning. I'm sure it'll find his way back. He immediately goes to great lengths to go out on a rescue mission. And then it says he leaves the 99 in open country and he goes out after this one who was lost. And 
I don't think the point of that is, I don't think this is a foolish, I don't think that he's blinded in his desire to find this one sheep that he's making foolish, risky decisions, and he's putting 99 at risk just to save one. He, he, he poses it as though everyone here would do the same thing. He says, which one of you, if you had 100 sheep and one was missing, wouldn't go out afterwards? So I don't think the point of the 99 and the one here is riskiness. I think that the point is a good shepherd... To a good shepherd, losing even one sheep uh, is not an acceptable loss. I think the assumption is the shepherd would leave the 99 with other hired hands, and he's going to go out because even one is an acceptable loss. I was thinking of John chapter 10, which I was praying from just a minute ago. In John 10, Jesus is calling himself the good shepherd. He says, I'm the good shepherd. And one of the things he says then is he says, I know my own, my own sheep, and my own know me, he says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So he's talking about other sheep that he says are his, but they're not in the fold yet. They're still out there, but he's identifying them as his. And he says, and they will hear my voice when I go out and I call for them. They're his, they're just not in the fold yet. And he's going to seek him out, just like this shepherd. As far as he's concerned, this isn't a cut-your-losses sort of situation. Well, we got 99. It's pretty good. He, it goes on, then. Look at the next verse, or next word. He goes after the one who is lost. We see more great lengths. Until he finds it. The sheep is not coming back without that, or shepherd is not coming back without that sheep. This isn't, uh, well, we'll give it an hour, and if he doesn't turn up, then we'll cut our losses. He goes out until he finds it. And then we see even the great effort here, the great lengths to which he goes, and what he does next when he finds the lost sheep, he lays it on his shoulders. He carries it physically back to the fold. The sheep needs more than just being found. He needs help getting home. And so do we, Grace. God's great lengths of seeking and saving us don't end at the moment our eyes are open. We once were lost and were blind, but now we see. God's great lengths to get us all the way home carry us through the remainder of our life as we follow Christ. Yesterday, these flowers are here because we remember the life of Doris Robbins, who was almost 97 and for over 80 years walked with the Lord. And he carried him, Doris on his shoulders for 80 plus years all the way home. So I want us to notice in this first parable, the great lengths to which God will go to seek and save us are, are described in terms of putting the, himself at great personal risk and carrying, shouldering a burden. That that's part, a partial image of seeking and saving and the great lengths to which God will go. We'll come back to that. Look at the second parable. With the lost coin, we see the great lengths to which God will go in the woman lighting a lamp sweeping the house, and seeking diligently for this coin that's lost. I want us to think about this woman for a minute. There's no mention of a husband in Jesus' story, so we're probably supposed to picture this woman living alone, which probably also means she's not wealthy. And at first it might look like the progression of stories goes from something more valuable, a sheep being lost, to just one coin. But look at the numbers. 
The first story is one out of 100 sheep. The second is one out of 10 silver coins. Each coin was about a day's wage. And so if this woman's savings are 10 silver coins, she's lost one-tenth of her earthly possessions, her earthly wealth. So this is a big deal. And if she's not very well off, she probably lives in a small, humble home, probably made out of mud and stone blocks or bricks, probably not windows or or much light, so it's kind of dark and and dirty inside, so you can understand why she might have lost this coin, dirt floor with cracks in it and hay strewn about. And and so what does she do? She gets down, obviously, on her hands and knees and starts sweeping all the, the dirt and filth away and shining a lamp to look into every dark crevice and crack for this coin. In this parable, the great lengths to which God goes is pictured more like condescension and illumination. She gets down to where it's dirty and dark and shines light and sweeps away the filth to find what's valuable. We'll come back to that in a minute. So what great lengths has God gone to to seek and save us? I want to think about it in two ways. Well, he sent his son to us but he sent his son for us. In each way, we see the great lengths to which God goes to seek and save. First of all, he sent his son to us. We just celebrated it through the month of Advent, the incarnation. God the Son took on flesh and dwelt among us. Like the lost coin parable, God seeking and saving is condescending and illuminating. God the Son takes on flesh. He lives as a human, walks our streets from village to village with dusty feet, pressing from one town to the next with his lamp and his broom in his hand. And he shares meals with sinners and he sits across the table and he looks them in the eyes with his eyes of love. And again, notice, he's got the lamp and the broom, right? He's not condoning sin. He's not approving of sin or turning a blind eye to it or or especially not participating in it. So don't ever take this idea that Jesus receives and eats sinners as he approves of sin. It doesn't really bother him. He comes with a a broom and a lamp (laughs) to sweep away the filth and shine the light into darkness. He comes personally to invite lost sinners home to God, into a new life of light and life, turning their back on sin and following after a loving Savior. I want to pause and ask a question that, that hit me as I was thinking on these two parables. And the question is this, what actions in these two parables correspond or are parallel to Jesus receiving and eating at the table with tax collectors and sinners. Because as I was thinking about it, my natural thought was it's receiving and eating sinners is parallel to the parties at the end of these two scenes. They found their lost sheep, they found their lost coin, and they gather around and they have a feast and they, and they celebrate around the table too. But I don't think that that's the parallel. I think what corresponds to Jesus receiving and eating sinners is all the seeking and saving action happening in these parables. I think receiving and eating sinners is parallel to going out after until he finds the sheep and sweeping and and shining the light until she finds the coin. Because if you think about it, Jesus wasn't hosting celebratory meals for repentant sinners. He was calling them back to himself around the dinner table. This is where they were drawing near to him to hear what he had to say. If you jump ahead to uh, Luke 19, when he's at 
this other meal with Zacchaeus and tax collectors, uh, when did Jesus say he wanted to sit and eat in his house? Zacchaeus hadn't done anything looking like repenting at that point. He was just trying to get a good glimpse of Jesus. And Jesus says, I want to eat at your house today. And it seems as the story goes on that it's as this meal is unfolding and Jesus is no doubt saying the same sorts of things he said at a meal like this that suddenly conviction comes over Zacchaeus and he stands up and he's repenting. And Jesus says, surely salvation has come to this house today. Receiving and eating with sinners, I think, wasn't Jesus' response to repentant sinners, but his method of seeking and saving lost sinners. He moved toward them with initiative in love and welcome, which is why they wanted to hear what he had to say. And we need to think about this as believers, as representatives and ambassadors for Jesus, as a church who says our mission is to engage and evangelize our world. We could have said that is our mission is to seek and to save the lost. Seeking means engaging, going outside these walls. And saving means giving the good news, the message of reconciliation that's been entrusted to us. If we follow a Savior who seeks and saves the lost, we are to seek and save the lost. And I'm struck this week in these parables that we need to remember, if we look at Jesus' example, that probably the majority of that engaging and evangelizing is going to happen outside of this room over meals, and over coffee, and standing out by the curb with a neighbor at the corner as they're walking their dog, or on the sideline of a soccer game, or during lunch break with a coworker or a fellow student. It involves risks at times, and reputation. Your reputation might take a hit. Relationships uh, might get messed with. If you're bold and seeking and saving like Jesus. But we don't have another choice. Our Savior went to great lengths to seek and save us. And he calls us to follow him and go and be part of his seeking and saving work. So that's the the first great length I wanted to think about is that God first sent his son to us in the flesh with God's invitation to come home in his mouth. And he sat lovingly around the table with the worst of the worst and said, you're invited in. But he also went to great lengths, as I think we know, by giving his son for us. And for the son, giving his life for us. The father and the son were totally on board with this plan together. In the first parable, God's seeking and saving is depicted by this shepherd who's willing to put himself at great personal risk and carry and shoulder a tremendous burden to get the sheep home. Maybe think of these verses from 1 Peter 2, 24 that connects these two ideas. Jesus' willingness to endure hostility at the hands of sinners at the cross so that he might carry the full burden and weight of all of our guilt of our sin on his shoulders so that then he can atone for it and get us back to the shepherd. Listen to 1 Peter 2, 24, 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we've been healed. But then what he says next. Why? Because you were straying like sheep. But you've now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. At the cross, we should see Jesus beginning to take each sheep on his strong shoulders to carry them home because we can't carry ourselves home. And it starts with forgiving our sin. 
But it continues by giving us his spirit to crush the, the bondage that sin's power has over us and to, by degrees, restore the image of our good shepherd in us. And like I said, Jesus was totally on board with this. And I want us to see that the great lengths show us the great love. I was thinking, first, uh, John 3.16, one of the most familiar verses in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. I was in seminary when I finally realized the word so didn't mean what I thought it did. I don't know if maybe this is going to be a new one for you. For God so loved the world, I always heard that as, for God loved the world so much, which is totally true and theologically accurate. But the word actually means like so, in this manner. In other words, for God, in this manner, like so, loved the world. So what he says next is what Jesus does is showing us the love of God and the love of Jesus that existed prior to the great lengths. It puts them in their proper order. How did God, like so, love the world? Well, he gave his only son to to be treated like a despicable sinner in our place. The great... Lengths show the great love, and it's the same for the Son. Galatians 2.20, Jesus himself, Paul is able to say, loved me and gave himself for me. The love is demonstrated in the great lengths to which he went. This is why I think the worst of the worst were flocking to Jesus. They could see his great love and began to believe that someone who loved him them like that could be trusted that whatever sin I need to turn my back on to follow him is totally worth it. So that's the first thing these parables teach us about God that explain why Jesus received and ate with sinners. God would go to great lengths to seek and save the lost. But here's the second thing. They also teach us that God rejoices with great joy over every single lost sinner who repents, who's found. Look at the sheep parable again. Where do we see the great joy? Well, with the shepherd, it begins when he finds the sheep. And I intentionally left the word out earlier. He lays it on his shoulders. What? If you have your Bibles out, you could fill in the blank right there. He lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. Think about this for a minute. I was trying to imagine myself as this shepherd and how this would have played out in, in, in reality. So imagine probably the time that they realized one, sh- one sheep was missing was when? At the end of the day? They're bringing the sheep back in from the field and they're putting them all in the pen overnight and they're counting 97, 98, 99. There's only 99. And it's the end of the day. And the sun's going down. And I'm tired. And I'm sore. I'm hungry. I probably got some cuts from thorn bushes or something. I just want food. But losing one's not an option. Every sheep counts. So out I go. Searching scrambling up and down hills and rocks and through thorny bushes and rolling my ankle and stubbing my toe as the sun's going down and finally find this sheep and it's slipped down into a ravine that's tipped over on its side and it can't get up and, and I pick it up and, you, and lay it on your shoulders and I try to imagine my conversation with that sheep. <laughs> you stupid sheep. I've been out here all night. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I mean, I could imagine cursing this sheep all the way back. But that's not an image of our good shepherd. He lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Now, I know what you might be picturing because of 
bad Bible clip art and Jesus Storybook Bibles, but this teeny cute little, like this, like that would not be, I could rejoice snuggling this little guy all the way back home, right? I mean, this would just be a pleasure. We'd just talk and, you know, but, but what if this is what we're talking about? I think this is this shepherd is in Kazakhstan. I think I found this photo, but that thing probably weighs seventy or eighty pounds dry, and it looks like it's raining. And look at the terrain. <laughs> that guy's gonna roll an ankle. And the shepherd in this picture, none of that, none of those obstacles, none of that weight matters to him for the joy of having found this sheep. One more picture I found. Again, that's a little cute little lamb. So I'm, that's not why I'm showing it. But look at this shepherd's face, man. That sheep's precious. He doesn't mind carrying that thing home, even if it gets heavy like this dude back here, right? I want to ask you, is that how we imagine the face of God when we turn from our sin back to him for forgiveness? Or do we picture him going furrowed brow. It's about time. I guess you can come in. No, Jesus tells a story. He says, no, it's like he carries you on your shoulders and he races back to the fold to get you where you're safe. He's not grumbling about you as he carries you home, Grace. You might feel like you're a burden to him and give him lots of reasons to have buyer's remorse and wish he could change his mind and back out on the deal, but he doesn't. He's carrying you home rejoicing. And there's an even more surprising image at the end of both parables about how greatly God rejoices over every sinner who repents. And it's each of these people throw a party. The shepherd and the woman, they come back, and they call all their friends and neighbors together, and they throw a party. One commentator pointed some out. It hadn't even occurred to me. But if this woman threw a party, even like a, a modest party, maybe just had a, a big meal for all of her neighbors and friends to celebrate, maybe she spent more money than the coin she found. I don't know, maybe that's not a detail Jesus intended. But either way, they're so thankful and they're so happy that they want others to join in on it and they throw a party. And then Jesus takes this analogy from lesser to greater. That's the whole point. Then he says at the end of each shepherd, he says, if, you, if a shepherd will rejoice like this over one sheep that's lost and if a woman will rejoice like this over one coin that she's found, how much more will the God of creation who created human beings to bear his image and that image has been marred and, 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 and stamped, almost stamped out, how far will he go and how much will he rejoice every time he saves one and begins to renew that image? In the lost sheep, parable, it ends Jesus saying there's going to be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And the point isn't that there are 99 people who don't need repentance. It should be in big scare quotes, right? Remember back when he said, I'm the great physician. I didn't come for the well. He said, the, the, the righteous, I didn't come for the righteous. I came for those who need a savior. Well, the, the truth of the matter is there are no non-righteous who don't need to repent. There are just people who think they're righteous and don't need to repent, and they're in danger. And that's what next two, in two weeks from now, that parable is going to be about. But here, I just want to focus on the joy. There will be joy in heaven. Look at the end of the lost coin, because there's one other little word in here that I love that, that to, for me, magnifies the joy of heaven. Look at, with, as, with the woman, just so I tell you, there is joy 
before the angels of God. There's joy in front of the angels of God. Not only are the angels of God rejoicing, the angels of God are watching rejoicing. Well, if, who beside the angels is in that picture? God. Just like in the parables, the, the shepherd and the woman are leading the rejoicing and calling others to join into it. The God of heaven is the lead rejoicer when one sinner repents. He's leading the way. He's singing the loudest. I thought this week, it made me think of Isaiah 6. If you don't, in Isaiah 6, Isaiah is given this vision of heaven and a different aspect of God's character, his holiness. And he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and it was surrounded by these massive, majestic, angelic beings who, despite their sinlessness and their glory and their holiness, they were covering their faces and their feet as they flew, crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah, seeing this, the trem the, it said the thresholds of the temple were shaking at the volume of worship of the holy God. And Isaiah said, woe is me, and he trembled with holy fear. And that's all true of the character of God. This is not an uh, and-or situation. But these two parables tell us that's not the only sound in heaven. In the little prophet Zephaniah chapter 3 we get this beautiful little description that God gives of how he will uh, rejoice over his people when they repent. And he says of God, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will exult over you with loud singing. Can you imagine the thresholds of the temple of heaven shaking with the joyful, exuberant singing of God? What that must sound like. Accompanied then by the host of heaven, harmonizing. That's over one sinner who repents. What about millions? It's an awesome picture that I think that we're supposed to keep in our minds vividly as to the future. That's why we engage and evangelize our world. We want the volume of that party to keep increasing. And I want to say to you this morning, if that rejoicing in heaven has not yet happened because of you, this morning could be the day. Right now could be the day that God exalts over you in singing because you realize, I'm a sinner. I need mercy. Jesus has made a way for me to have that mercy. And you give up your striving. You lay your sin down. And you say, Father, forgive it because of what Jesus did at the cross. Help me now. Carry me back to the fold. Carry me home. If you do that this morning, one of our prayer team or myself, I would love to talk with you after this service and talk more than how do we begin walking and following Jesus as a shepherd. So as we finish, Grace, I just want to remind us, God has gone to great lengths to seek and save us. And he's rejoicing greatly in heaven over each one who is saved and all along the way, I think. I don't think it's just one, you get one day. There's a group I want to finish with in this scene that don't get named, but we should assume are there, and that's the disciples, right? Because at this point, the disciples are all with Jesus. He's heading to Jerusalem, and each one of these sins, whether they get uh, scenes, whether they get named or not, they're there. 
So what are we who are following Jesus, who have been found and are now following Jesus to take away from these parables? Well, it's in the same way that Jesus went to great lengths to seek and save the lost. We are. And I want to remind you why Jesus did it. Hebrews 12.2 says that Christ endured the shame of the cross for the joy set before him. And these parables have described the joy set before him. Jesus knew more than anyone what sort of celebrations would erupt in heaven every time another one for whom Jesus the Lamb was slain returns to the shepherd and overseer of their souls. As we follow him, we need to keep that joy before us, the joy of heaven. And I want to just finish with a story about Doris Robbins, who we remembered her life yesterday. If you knew Doris, she was an evangelist. She and her husband, Wally, were evangelists for decades of ministry in local churches in Canada, New Brunswick, and Yonkers, and Atlantic City, and Mesa, Arizona. But even here, in their last six years, right here among us at Grace, Doris was an evangelist. I mean, her, her kids and grandkids would tell you that she'd share the gospel with anyone, the checkout person, and someone walking their dog past her porch on North Malden and praying by name for all of her neighbors, and she knew which ones didn't know the Lord yet. She just was an evangelist. Well, my son Levi and I, had a privilege of being over with her in her living room. It was, it was less than two weeks before the Lord called her home. It was the last time I saw Doris and was with her. And Levi and I were with, there with her, and we were talking, and we'd read scripture, and we, there was more, more of us there, and, and we'd sing a little bit. But at one point, Doris just wanted to tell us the story of how she had led her father to Christ when she was 18. So this is almost 80 years ago. So she's telling us the story. She said, my father was a hard man did not know the Lord. My mom did. She took me and my brother to church faithfully. But there was this one night where they had some guests over for dinner and somehow conversation around the dinner table came to, to things of the Lord. And her dad call, recalled back when her brother had been baptized and he had attended church for it, he had heard the pastor preach a sermon where he talked about two groups of people, those who are in the house of the saved or the lost and those who are in the house of the found. And she had just gotten up from the table, she said, and was heading to her room, and she overheard her dad's voice break and say to her mom, Edith, I, th I think I'm in the house of the lost. And she said she turned around, she ran in, and she knelt by her dad's chair at the dinner table, this hard man, and said, Daddy, you don't have to be in the house of the lost. You can be in the house of the saved right now. And she said they got up, walked to the living room, knelt down by the sofa, and she led her dad in praying and trusting Christ. And he walked with Christ for seven more years until he died of cancer. But I, I tell you this story for one reason. That's a powerful story. But as she was telling Levi and I and, and, and her daughters who were in the room who've heard this story many times, but us for the first time, she got to the point of kneeling with her dad to pray. She got all choked up, and she put her hand up, and she said, she apologized. She said, I'm sorry. I get so emotional every time. Every time I tell this, and I thought, for eight, this, this day that the heavens rejoiced over her father being found was 80 years ago. And in this moment, as she told us, it was as fresh in her mind and heart as it was 80 years ago. And I have no doubt that that joy set before Doris, day in and day out, of filling the heavens with joyful praise over the lost being found was why she talked to everyone she knew about Jesus and what, she, what he'd done. Paul said, remember those, the leaders in your life. And Doris was a leader. She wasn't in a formal role of leadership here at Grace among us, but she was a leader. She was leading the way. And it says, remember those who spoke to you the word of God and 
consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. And in this way, I want to urge us, Grace, to imitate Doris's faith. To be a people who seek and save the lost. If you are found, God has given you your own shepherd's crook and broom and lamp. So the question this morning as we finish is, to whom has he sent you? To whom is God sending you? I want to give us a minute just to be quiet, for you to talk with the Lord, to pray, and say, Lord, I know you've entrusted a message of reconciliation, and you've made me a minister of reconciliation. To whom are you sending me? And maybe you need to say, Lord, uh, am I being reluctant in this? Maybe, Maybe you know to whom God is sending you, and you're reluctant for one reason or another, and ask the Lord to break that reluctance down and give you a desire to move toward. Maybe you're fearful. Maybe you're hesitant because you don't want to ruin a family relationship or a friendship, but take a minute and talk to the Lord about who he is sending you to and ask him to fill you with uh, anticipation for future joy in heaven.